0: for myself john and my friend chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing chris how you doing today i'm good john how are you today uh i'm doing pretty good uh i understand uh based on some light googling uh that apparently today is the oscars uh ceremony and this episode has nothing to do with that just (laughs) marking the occasion marking the recording date for this episode um Unless, uh, unless you know of if Al- Alfred Hitchcock any has any posthumous films that came out last year that would be up for words. I would assume not.
1: I would think not. Um, although that would be a fairly big surprise if it were. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, if people can <laughs> dig up Orson Welles' shit, I'm assuming that it should theoretically be possible. But um, yeah, today's episode is about uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, who I I mean I've seen. I've seen the classics. I've seen the hits. Like I've seen some of the, some of his biggest stuff. And, uh, in this year's, uh, blank check March Madness contest, they wanted to include Hitchcock, but his, I, what I didn't realize was that his filmography covers such a, long span of time he's so prolific that they actually had to break him out into like different sections of hitchcock so like hitchcock this decade hitchcock that decade um in their brackets um and so yeah i i I can't really say other than sort of the you know the big ones that you think of your your psychos your vertigos your rear windows etc like i don't really have a it feels like the, to talk about Hitchcock as a whole ass filmmaker across the entirety of his career is a, is a pretty daunting task. Uh, yeah.
1: You know. and, and and one we're not going to cover on this episode. So just a bit of background. We had just wrapped up our Paul Verhoeven episode with uh, Dan Moore. Still, I think today, one of the, the most enjoyable episodes, at least to record, uh, <laughs> that I've ever done. Um, but I, I think both of us got a lot of work stress going on. And just at, at the time, uh, I needed a kind of break. Uh, so I had suggested, hey, let's do some Hitchcock because I had, like you, I had grown up. Uh, well, you may not have grown up with it, but I, I grew up with all the hits of Hitchcock um, owing to we've talked about this numerous times, my, my father being a huge fan of, of Cary Grant. Uh, so North by Northwest and um, Suspicion and Notorious were films that I had grown up um, watching and loving with him. And I'm a huge Jimmy Stewart fan. So seeing him and all of the, the classics that he did with Hitch, I felt like for me, it would just be just a chance to kind of decompress, relax and, and revisit some of my favorites. So yeah, his career is extensive. And you can not only talk about Hitch in terms of decades but just in terms of style there was you know there were silent films in the early talkies and the british films and then the move to america and then the the move to technicolor uh and then the move to you know widescreen and then the genres that he touches he's he for a person who is so collared with uh the master of suspense Um, He's actually gone and done quite a few things um, broadly from a genre perspective, so it was cool to kind of dive in for a little bit. I know you and I watched multiple films spanning multiple decades uh, to prep for this, but we're going to just focus on two of them. And we're not focusing on probably two of his biggest, um, but I think there's value in everything that, that you see from the guy, so... I don't know. That's all I got to say on it, John. What, what what were your thoughts before we dive into our films, just kind of going and seeing some of the stuff you've seen before and, and, and revisiting? I think for you, this was the first time seeing some of the earlier stuff, too, right?
0: Yeah, we're not talking about his uh, his British films today, but I was surprised in watching them just how like again when you think of what like when you think of the biggest hits of alfred hitchcock the title master of suspense and then you watch uh movie some of his british films some of which just are like feel like actual comedies like it's just like i'm just like these are it's there are moments that make me laugh and i'm like i don't think i'm supposed to laugh here or maybe i am i'm not sure and i'm and i think that just could be down to expectation um like it's it is interesting to see in some of the earlier films which we won't be talking about uh but just sort of the like how pieces of what will come to define him uh so sort of the sort of the that stuff in its embryonic form i guess that's that's yeah. that, as far as like the earlier stuff that was that was about it there were there was moments here and there where I l where i like found it enjoyable like the oh, shit which what was the one with this the clay pigeon Uh, shooting one is that that's uh, the man who knew too much right so that was like i i just really liked that with the way he set it up at the beginning where she's doing the clay pigeon shooting and then the movie ends with her you know with her firing the gun in a nice little nod to the beginning like there's little bits and pieces where i'm like yeah that part was fun that part was cool um but the movies we're talking about today are movies that i'm much more like dialed into and like <laughs> resonate with a lot more um so why don't we why don't we get started chris why don't you interest into our first movie
1: yeah so for first one we are going to talk about 1948's rope <laughs> So Rope, 1948 psychological crime thriller um, starring um, a bunch of people, but primarily the lead here is uh, Jimmy Stewart. But you also have Farley Granger, um, who we know uh, from earlier, if you've ever seen Strangers on the Train, um, he was one of the stars there. John Dahl, who is is fantastic in this film. Um, Adapted by the play uh, by Patrick Hamilton uh, called, called Rope, one of the things that was interesting um, is the, the actual adaptation for screen treatment. Uh, the screenplay was by Arthur Lorenz, but the story to kind of adapt it mm-hmm. is by Hume... Cronin, <laughs> the actor uh, who was married with to Jessica Tandy, and is in Cocoon and hundreds and hundreds of probably other movies. When I saw his name, I'm like, oh, hot damn! You Cronin adapted this for uh, the screen before Lorenz took it for the actual screenplay, um, and it's also kind of loosely based on um, Leopold and Loeb, uh, f- famous. Um, 1920s kind of murderous uh, scandal where these two students killed a, a 14-year-old boy. Um, and that's generally what this movie is about. This movie is about uh, two people, uh, John Dahl and Farley Granger. They are kind of postgraduate bachelors living um, a very interesting and somewhat closeted bachelor life uh, in the city. And the movie opens with them murdering one of their friends. They strangle them with a piece of rope. And uh, they do this because they feel that they are of an elite nature of humanity, and, and there is a certain... Um, entitlement due to them and they just wanted to see what it was like and they murdered this person um and the plan is they stick him in a box like a a large drawer and they're going to dispose of him later that evening and have it be this perfect crime uh but um john Dahl, uh kind of the um main character here uh he's he's brandon he is going to have a party first, uh, and he invites the parents of the deceased person, the girlfriend of the deceased person, uh, the jilted lover who was one of their their cohorts when they were in college, um, and then above all of that, he invites his old kind of headmaster, um, Rupert Cadell, played by Jimmy Stewart, who um, he always associated as a kindred spirit and a, a deep thinker and philosophizer who who could potentially appreciate what has happened here. So this is, without a doubt, very much a bottle episode. Everything takes place in this apartment. Um, And the way Hitchcock stitches it together, he stitches it together to be as seamless as possible. It's supposed to very much look like everything is done in one take. So to have all of the creativity and and time compression of a play to make it look in real time, but with the freedom of the camera to go and accentuate the things that you want to accentuate. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, it, you know, in, in nowadays in the year 2022, when you can stitch together everything artificially using computers, um, you know the way that he does it in Rope is very obvious. Uh, there are close ups to people's backs that go completely. <laughs> He that's, yeah, that's,
0: that's He uses that one a lot in this movie.
1: He uses it a lot. I mean, but again, at the time, this is 1948. This hasn't really been done like this before. So it's an interesting way to kind of compress time and keep it dynamic, um, but allow the freedom of the camera to do the things that cinema can do. So he's trying to have the best of both worlds here. And the movie becomes this kind of ticking time bomb of, Can they get away with it? Uh, Can Jimmy Stewart figure out what's going on? And then, interestingly, I don't think you and I would have a question around this, but I watched this with my family and my son watched. And it was his first time kind of seeing a film where the two main characters are not the people that you want to root for. Uh, So I found all of this really interesting. Uh, So, John, kind of to kick off our quick conversation, I mean, obviously, besides your overall thoughts of rope— I definitely want to hear from you about the technique, which, which uh, as thinly veiled as it is here, I I want to know if it worked for you. And then finally, just kind of some of the theme and stuff overall, uh, what'd you come away with after seeing rope? Was this your first time seeing rope?
0: I actually have seen rope before. Um, because when I was, uh, when I was starting to watch some like Alfonso Cuarón stuff where it was like let's go, let's look at like crazy long takes uh uh that kind of thing I came across someone talking about Rope as it's technically a cheat but like this whole movie is supposed to be one take uh and I remember watching it then as my first time and yeah the the um like the fa- the fact that there's cheats I don't think subtracts from the impressiveness of the the choreography of camera movements and, and where, how actors position themselves. Um, even if it's not quite as like magical, uh, in, in, in that to be fair sense. though. Right. Yeah.
1: I mean, each, each, take even before the cheat it's 10 minutes long i mean yes. that's a massively long take in that and that, itself. Yes.
0: that is yeah that, that's why it's, that's why it's still like real that's why it's still really impressive if not like like mind shattering in in that sense like it, it is still very impressive how they're able to pull together the things that they do but i wanted the thing that actually and and maybe i'm a, maybe i'm an idiot uh for this but the actual thing the actual technique of this film that blows my mind is the background outside, like the view outside the apartment. Cause this whole thing is shot indoors. Um, and the, the background showing the, the cityscapes, uh, it starts off in, in broad daylight. So you, it's, it's bright outside. There's, there's some clouds and stuff, but as the film progresses in real time over the next, you know, 90 minutes, uh, the, the this you can see the the skyline change color and eventually get uh sunsetty and orangey purpley and then yeah. there's lights that go on and you see little bits where there's like uh chimney stacks or whatever and like smoke coming out of various ones like you can it is it, it's a it like we i know that it's constructed but the way that they're actually able to tr- coordinate all of the not just have a matte painting but actually have something that is able to like where they're having like moving parts around different pieces and that that shit again maybe i'm an idiot for liking it but <laughs> but i i that was the part that actually blew me away was like I, can't, I couldn't get over it how the background kept changing um and how they were able to do it that that was
1: well, the from, set design yeah. in general is fantastic. Yeah, I I, I think that's such a, a key spot because it's so—and I think that's one of the wonders of, of Hitchcock and how he does some of this stuff anyway. I think—correct me if I am wrong—I um, had watched a bit of the documentary on the making of this. I think this was his first Technicolor film. So— uh, I he you know for for someone who this is his first color film um he's a master at just kind of that type of thing the background the the windowscape is obviously not real, but the way that he's able to use the colors in, in the background and the slowly, you know, evolving shades to make it go from the beginning of the bright af- afternoon to the evening when the the climax of the film takes place, um it's it's a marvel. And I I I think you are you are absolutely right to be kind of impressed and blown away by that that stuff. I I think his his camera work too again By our modern standards, some of the cuts and jumps may be obvious and a little clunky, but the way he's able to, because this is a bottle episode, the way he's able to do these even 10-minute takes and revolve around the room with the camera, um, is kind of a marvel. It's a marvelous set design and, and it's a marvel of economy of movement for the camera. It, it works very effectively. Um, even though, and I do agree with you, when you come to each chunk, like everyone in our family was like, well, we just changed, you know, camera reels because the reel ran out. Uh, but it, it, it still works. And I don't think that detracts at all from the, from the film itself.
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to the like the actual thing that happens uh you know within the movie, like again, like the like after the opening exterior shot with the title card, the like it cuts to the inside of the apartment and the first thing you're seeing is the guy being strangled. Like this is uh like the the I think Brandon and Philip and to an extent Hitchcock sort of just like, not to use too vulgar a metaphor here, just sort of putting, just taking it, whipping it out and just like putting on the table, just like, we're going <laughs> to, we're, we're starting with a murder that you see is happening. And then we're just going to spend the next 90 minutes, um, like putting ourselves in increasingly challenging positions to try and get away with it. Cause they could have just like, again, the, if they, they, the, the seemingly the whole point of this exercise is to sh- show how superior they are supposed to be. And so it's not just enough to have killed him they decide to have a dinner party afterwards with the body still in the apartment and it's not just a dinner party it's a dinner party full of the deceased's friends and loved ones and even that's not enough because they describe their friends and loved ones as like simpletons who couldn't figure this shit out if it was staring them in the face and so they have to bring in jimmy stewart who is the only person they see who could possibly uh <clears throat> figure it out and then even they think he you know he's you know he's of a sufficiently elite type like them that he could, you know, that he'd actually respect it. Um, which I, I think that, like, the, 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 when it comes to the Philip uh, of it, he's the, I mean, he's the weak link in the chain, like, seemingly all the way through, right? Like, you, you know, from minute one, like, he, this guy's gonna break. Um, and that Brandon, who's the guy who keeps, getting progressively more and more complex and ambitious and borderline ridiculous with his plans is sort of the, the driving force of no, we're going to do the perfect murder and have a dinner party where we're going to basically flaunt uh, this in front of everyone and no one's going to be able to figure it out. Yeah. You know what's
1: interesting about that? And I, I I think this is, I not knowing the original material, I don't know if this was always the case, but it's a brilliant kind of, um, Bit of business is that, um, Brandon being so high and mighty and being the one who is trying to live the ideal and pushing it further and further and further. That's, that's all great for Brandon because Philip is the one who actually murders David. <laughs> you know when it when it opens um Brenda's holding him but but Philip has got the rope because Philip as they in a in a great sequence later on in in the film has got the experience strangling chickens um and it's Farley Granger with the rope you know wrapped around his neck pulling and squeezing him and it is eventually Philip who he's way more traumatized and has PTSD from the event and 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 doesn't actually break, but I mean, he might as well have broken for all of his histrionics and his screaming, which was one of my wife's favorite parts of the movie, just seeing how completely rattled Philip gets as the course of the movie gets on, and he just starts screaming and yelling at Jimmy Stewart. Uh, It's, I love that Brandon becomes more and more and more the one to push and go forward, but it's really Philip, the one who actually has done the thing that they have been talking about experiencing. And I I love the contrast of the one with the ideal is not the one who actually committed the act. So it's almost a false pretense that he's pushing and being so braggadocious and so boastful about his his elitism.
0: That's an interesting point, because I was actually thinking, just given that we recently were talking about Basic Instinct uh, last episode, how I think Brandon, obviously this would be decades before Basic Instinct would ever come out, but the like brandon has the like has the you know the the seeming confidence and vision of like uh, a a sharon stone but he is much more of a michael douglas like 100 percent like like it's it's not it's not even that someone has managed to like completely outwit him at every turn but like his 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 partner philip um whether we take that regardless of how we understand the term partner in this sense um is always on the verge and, 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 and understandably. So I don't, I've never killed a person, but I suspect that it could be traumatizing if, uh, (laughs) uh, to do so. And, uh, for all of the stuff that Brandon puts together, he, he is undone by, uh, ultimately by Philip, who, uh, he, in, in all of his plans, he didn't see as having that kind of reaction to, to the whole affair. Yeah. The, Something that I was curious about, and I think I asked you, um, a few days ago was, uh, Jimmy Stewart as Rupert, uh, could, K- is it Cadell? Cadell. Yeah. So, I mean, when we think of Jimmy Stewart, we think of, you know, it's Jim fucking Jimmy Stewart. Like yeah. he is, he, he's the, <laughs> the, the, the nicest man. Like Bedford it,
1: Falls. It, it's a, it's a wonderful life, yeah. right? It's, uh, Mr. Mr. Smith goes to Washington.
0: I watched a clip of Orson Welles giving a speech at the Roast of Jimmy Stewart and it was just very clever way of just describing it it's, and just the absolute nicest of things there's like even even at the Roast of Jimmy Stewart quote unquote Orson Welles had nothing but the highest of praises <laughs> to say um like <clears throat> unimpeachable right and so I the question I had asked you was like how close how does Jimmy Stewart ever Get into playing more morally dubious characters because the movie ends with him sort of sussing out the murder and solving the problem and doing it. But like they, Philip and Brandon, take their whole idea and their whole inspiration from the teachings they got from Jimmy yeah. Stewart and in the initial parts like Jimmy Stewart legitimately in the in the, at the dinner party section when Jimmy Stewart is there before he starts to figure out the things are going on he's talking about like how you know we should have a day where we can do murders and i was like you just invented the purge I was gonna- <laughs> you just invented the purge jimmy stewart jimmy stewart invented be- the purge <laughs> beacon of moral certitude and kindness and brilliant light of joy in all of our lives just decided you know what i think the purge would be good um and and his and, and like and obviously brandon and more so philip are the actual perpetrators of it but like i watch this movie and be like yeah jimmy stewart has some responsibility uh, in this uh, uh some responsibility for this murder and he 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 solves it and puts it together but like this is not a shade of jimmy stewart that i'm ever close to being no, like familiar with.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, and he, yeah. He, so I don't think he ever truly plays like morally reprehensible characters, but if you look at some of his, like, especially some of his Westerns with Anthony Mann and stuff, it it, it becomes a little bit more scratchy, a little bit more, maybe not ambiguous, but a little more salty. Um, but I love, I love that about this movie. I love that they, they take. Um, and it's not even that fully flesh. I mean, this is only two years after "It's a Wonderful Life," right? It's it, it's not you know we're talking nineteen forty eight. I think "It's a Wonderful Life" was forty six. Um, but I love the 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 dawning horror on on Rupert as he realizes that they've done, you know, what they've done, and he realizes his moral complicitness to it, like he. He comes right out and says he's like disgusted that he's ever thought like that because you know, the 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 consequences are now in front of him. And and I think he he realizes that he bears a certain weight of responsibility to the thing. The thing that I found really interesting too about I mean, and I can go on and on. One day I would love to do an episode on Jimmy Stewart and just touch on so much of his stuff, why I love him so much, but the the thing that I really found about this, it, it it draws to watching his performance. One of the things that I noticed with my wife is, um, his hands are shaking a lot, and I was like, well, that that's so weird. I've never seen Jimmy Stewart like in such an early film like have the old man shakes. Um, so that's what prompted me to go and look up how old he was when he was making this movie. Uh, and I am first terrified and ashamed to say that he was eight years younger than I am <laughs> when he made Rope. <laughs> he was 40 years old when, he, when Rope came out. So he was either 40 or 39 when he made the, the movie. Um, I, 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 reading more about him on Wikipedia mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere, um, it, it's 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 no secret or, or surprise, especially in the industry. He skewed a lot older. He looked a lot older older than he actually was. And then one of the reasons we have the current version of North by Northwest that we do is because Jimmy Stewart really wanted that role, but he just looked too old. So they went with Cary Grant, who was around the same age but looked much younger, just because he didn't have the hair, you know, going all all gray or or some of the mannerisms that Stewart had. Um, so I'm like, oh, well, the guy's really young. I wonder why he was shaking so much. Was it an affectation that he was, you know, putting on for the movie? So apparently, he was such a traditional actor and so unused to trying to do these massively long takes mm-hmm. that he was exhausted (laughs) and he was drinking quite heavily because he was so frustrated with the way that they were filming this it was just not how you do and he was a very conservative person it was this is just not how hollywood movies are made you don't make them like this uh and he was just getting angrier and angrier and drunker and drunker as they were going on uh hence the shaking and the exasperated exhausted look of him Uh, even though he still gives a wonderful performance in the film
0: well, and given and given the character's interesting position within the movie, I mean, yes, I had also heard that he wasn't especially fond of uh this particular movie based on its like Hitchcock trying to experiment with, you know, yeah. the, the whole time thing, but I mean <laughs> Angry Jimmy Stewart, or angry, slightly possibly drunk Jimmy Stewart, like I think actually works for this kind of character. Where it does,
1: <laughs> yeah. And it I'm sure. Uh, look, no aspersions on Mr. Stewart. I I don't know if he was yeah. drunk on set during the filming, but he was drinking quite heavily. Uh, he wasn't sleeping. It comes across in the performance, and he uses it to weave the magic that he weaves as a as a transcendental character. There.
0: <laughs> I, I I will say that I think that the. I I do think that the film primarily is a triumph of technique and production over um the performances though I don't think the performances slouch in any particular way um I th- I think uh I I'll I'll give them that uh but watching it again this time around uh yeah I was like yeah the actors are are doing what they need to and it, and it's good stuff and then yeah it's really cool to see um uh and the, the the, it whereas with the next movie we're going to talk about it's it's it starts off really low key and then just progressively builds to an almost like an insane, uh, uh, insane level of intensity. The, the the with rope, the the it's all it almost always operates at a like it's never, it's rarely like high key, but it's, it's just a low hum of the, you always know where the body is. It's, it's always within there. Like what, what is going to be the thing? Like they don't, they don't try and do too many cheap. Like I'm going to go to the box. Like they do it maybe once or twice. Um, but it's, it's, it's mostly just sort of a, a low key thing that, you know, is going to happen or that, you know, a danger that, you know, is present throughout the whole movie. And so, to yeah. use sort of sparingly. I guess. <laughs>
1: well, they do it. So I, I, I will agree with you for the most part, but take small issue just in terms of performance wise. I think John Dahl is Brandon. I, he is phenomenal. Oh in the yeah. Movie. I, yeah, he, yes. God damn, he, he is good. And I, I highly recommend this isn't in my recommendations, but if you want to see John Dahl kill it again, check out the 1950 movie gun crazy. Um, it is, it is one of the other films where he is like the main lead and it's about a guy and a girl who go a little gun crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, it is phenomenal and he is just as magnetic there, but he is phenomenal here. Um, in this, in this, th- this movie, I, I, I can't take my eyes off of him.
0: I, I absolutely would agree that he's like probably my favorite, uh, you know, him and him and Jimmy Stewart are probably yeah, the, they're, the, they're, they're, they're
1: fantastic. Yeah. And then I think. One of the other things that's really interesting that you said, um, they don't use like the cheap gags with the dead body to kind of ratchet up the tension, but they don't have to because Hitchcock is using something else to ratchet up the tension. And that's the breaking point of Philip. So you don't need to keep going to the chest of drawers. You just keep watching how much more tightly wound Philip goes and the, and the ratcheting tension, the ticking bomb is not. Do they see the body? It's to what you said earlier. When's Philip going to break? And that's that's, fair, yeah. that's what Hitchcock keeps winding up and winding up and winding up tighter and tighter until the end where everything just kind of, you know, you, you know, spring at that moment. And I really do like it um I really do like it for that.
0: Yeah, I think that uh I mean I think the classics are classics for reasons that are undeniable. Um but I I there is a lot here in this uh, in, in rope that I'm really glad to have watched it again. Like it's there's just a, there's just some really cool shit and <laughs> I'm always a fan of cool shit.
1: Yeah, it's a solid movie. It's not look, it it it's I I like you would probably not put it in the Cream of the crop of Hitchcock. It's, it's not in the same for me as Vertigo or Rear Window, um, or for me a little bit earlier, Shadow of a Doubt, um, or the next movie that we are going to talk about, which I would argue is in the upper echelon, um, also North by Northwest. Um, but it's, it's one of the early films that shows him Doing what he does in a way that he hasn't tried before. And I really appreciate it for that. And I think it's a, it's, if it's not in that top tier, I think it's right below. I, I I think it's in the next set of, uh, you know, still, you know, really, really solid, great films from him.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, speaking of, uh, uh, you know, top tier, uh, top tier Hitchcock, why don't we move on to our next film, which is the birds. Came out in 1963, stars Rod Taylor, Jessica Tandy, Tippi Hedron, and my choice uh of this movie mostly boils down to one very simple fact, uh, which is that uh my wife, my beloved spouse, partner and mother of my children, um, has steadfastly refused over the years to watch it, um, such that I had never actually seen it. Uh and every time I'd ask, say, Hey, I'd like to watch the birds because it's supposed to be, you know, classic. And every time she said no, it just made me want to do it more. So now, uh, given the excuse of having a podcast for which I, which would force me to watch it, I was like, well, obviously I'm going to pick it now. Um, <clears throat> so this was my first time around, uh, uh, watching the birds and the there's so much stuff that we need to talk about um for one well the, we don't need to talk about it. I'll just mention it quickly that simpsons halloween episode where the dolphins take over and there's that shot of all the dolphins just sort of standing in rows like <laughs> silently i'm just like ah that's a birds reference which is how most of my like anytime i watch something new from pop culture it's like oh i get it because the simpsons did a joke about it um i expected the whole time i was i know that i mean the movie starts is called The Birds, and you know the from just Cultural Osmosis that it's about the birds attacking. But the second that I saw Jessica Tandy as Lydia, as the mom, I was like, somehow the mom is involved in this. Like, I've seen enough, I've seen again enough Hitchcock to know, like, the mom is gonna be this like weird, somehow menacing, somehow responsible for it all figure that's just going to like just somehow she's gonna be the villain. And she never does um and like she's kind of a red like she's she's not a fan of tippy hedron uh but is like i i kind of ex- i was kind of surprised that she ends up being a little bit of a red herring of like oh she's somehow going to be the the malevolent threat in this movie somehow connected to the birds but no she's just a mean old lady that then there's nothing going on there any any initial thoughts on jessica tandy
1: yeah, uh a lot of thoughts on just did. I think she's fantastic in this movie. I I think all around with one exception that we'll talk about when we talk about the cast in general. I think the cast is phenomenal. Um and I think you so I I wonder if this is just like a way we come to the movie because I I never I even seeing this the first time, I never was looking for the plot mechanic to figure out oh she's the evil villain of the piece. She. This is very much like um, kind of a retroactive comparison, like to yourself. You're oh, this is. (laughs) I I I know this from The Simpsons. You know the way that the birds is formulated to me comes from like the closest connection that I make is. Stephen King. This is the mist. This is a bunch of people that a, a stressful supernatural experience brings out their true colors. And you find out through Jessica Tandy that, you know, she, there's a reason why she's kind of a maniacal. You know, clingy bitch, and it's because of what has happened to her, and and what uh, and how she kind of taken her life experiences and implanted that onto her son. Um, so I think she's phenomenal. I think she has maybe my second favorite scene in the entire movie, um, and the fact that she does kind of come around at the end. I, I never saw it as a red herring. I just saw it as one of those. Because the threat is the other, Hitchcock tends to focus in then on his primary character. So I just saw her as one more conflict that needed to be resolved in order for this movie to kind of end. And when it does, it does. And it does so very nicely, I, I think. But uh, I don't know, that was a long roundabout way for me to say I thought Jessica Danny was fantastic in this movie.
0: Well, absolutely. And, and, and I think, yeah, especially in the end, when they do sort of get to sort of resolving that, I was like, Oh, this is actually kind of nice. Um, and when it comes to like, like they, they're able to give her more breadth and dimension than I was necessarily expecting, uh, which doesn't always happen. Let's say, for example, like the kids in this movie. the 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 the, something that i noticed especially in some of the earlier british films like (laughs) sometimes kids happen in the in hitchcock movies and they just exist to be picked off like just (laughs) absolutely smoked uh whether it's uh oh is it uh fuck was it the lady vanishes where the kid uh gets I, i don't know There, there's definitely one where the kid ends up having a bomb and gets blown up uh Accidentally, and then I'm also thinking of like the the students at the school in the birds just getting like real fucked up by those birds. Just does not <laughs> does not give a uh, absolute fuck. So I that was kids definitely the, something I noticed. This kids are around. there,
1: yeah. Kids are there for the most part to be put in peril, right? Because Hitchcock knows that's a device that's going to get to adults. Right, like you know it yourself. We, we we've had conversations with other films where sometimes it's hard to watch a film where a child is in danger or a child is hurt because it preys on all of your kind of parental instincts, particularly if you are a parent. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock knows that and devilishly is like, "Fuck you guys! I'm going to show a bunch of birds." <laughs> Getting at them kids, and it's gonna be it's gonna be hilarious in one way just because the effects at the time some of them some of them are amazing, and some of them are quite dated but at the second time Hitchcock has no problem showing blood kind of streaking over a poor kid's face as a bird starts attacking them, and it's it's deliciously evil
0: <laughs> yeah the the way that yeah i I think that my child danger alarm that goes off in my head when i see that in movies didn't trigger for this one as much um where i was like i don't want to watch this and and i think part yeah. of that part of that comes down to again the, the effect like when the birds aren't moving and the, when the birds are just sort of lined up in a row silent uh that shit is legit creepy and but the second you have like your they, they have to attack the kids and so you see the the, <clears throat> the green screen the terrible green screen stuff like that <clears throat> that that kind of that that's one of the reasons why it breaks for me but also the sense of just like i think in the at least in some of the movies i have when hitchcock puts kids in danger i kind of feel that i feel like hitchcock is just trying to fuck with me and yeah. it, it, it sort of t- gives me a distance where i'm not like <laughs> uh <clears throat> freaking out about it um the i i i want to say that the I originally came into watching the birds and thinking that like, well, the effects, uh, aren't great, but like the more that I was first thinking that like, I preferred rope, but then as we get further, the, 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 the the gradual increase in tension to the point where like at the beginning, it's basically a romantic comedy. And then like halfway through it, Is, is when things start to really pop off. And then by the end, you're seeing like the front door of the house with like bird, uh, with holes pecked out by birds. And it, it just, it almost becomes operatic at that point. Just how. The heights at which we we reach, I had I had to reverse my decision. I was like, ah, no, birds is birds has got to win on this one. No,
1: birds, (laughs) yeah, I I mean it's it's a phenomenal movie. It 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 works for me the same way in Rope in that look the effects are what the effects are, right? It's 1963. I, I think for the time, um, they weren't actually green screen. Uh, it's a real interesting process. They use kind of like an animation process where they were able to kind of get away from a lot of the the weird hues that green screening stuff in at the time would do. Um, it still doesn't mean that it's, that it's not incredibly obvious, like the lack of depth. If they just have a bird get smaller and smaller, there's no impression of it getting further and further away. It just kind of hangs on the screen. Um, but I, 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 I think what makes the birds work so well is to your point, it starts off as like a weird romantic comedy. You're not sure what's happening. And then we have like the first, the first real sign is you just see a lot of birds. Like, Oh, it's weird. Really emphasizing those birds. Huh? And then the one bird attacks Tippy Hedren and It like rams her right in the head and, and cuts her open. And you're like, Oh, that was kind of weird. And then once the attacks start happening, they are a little bit fake and they seem a little weird. Like, like even the school one, as as intense as that gets it still i still have a little bit of that distance where i'm like i'm still paying attention to the effects a little bit more than i probably should and i have to kind of think back that at the time i guarantee the audience was not thinking about the effects cuz they had never seen anything like that before but by the time it gets to the climax of the film where the attack in the house comes that looks spectacular. I mean, that looks, I, I don't know how anyone would do that now and make it look any better than Hitchcock does it in that, in that final sequence. It is terrifying. And it is a combination of real birds and effects and puppets and just, he makes everything come together so masterly. It, it, one of the most, kind of, one of the images I will take with me to the grave of this film is, to I, I, I think you'd mentioned it, the shot of the door. He just focuses on the door. And it sounds funny if I describe it. What's happening is the birds are pecking through the door. And you're seeing the door, from our perspective, start to splinter because birds, regular old birds, are just pecking through it. But at that point in that movie, it is terrifying to see that happen. Um, and then what happens afterwards, and then how everything kind of ratches ratchets to the climax. It is... This is why he is the master of suspense because he just builds this dread and this dread and this dread um, up until it can't be contained anymore and I I think he wisely saves all of his budget for that last piece and it is... It's spectacular. I, I don't know another sequence in Hitchcock's filmography that a couple things accepted like like Psycho's shower scene that explodes like that final bird scene it it is it is to me just one of the best things that he's ever done that last sequence of the film
0: the well in that shot specifically it it th- that shot for me works where some of the bird attack stuff is you obviously can sort of keep it at a distance is because the the whole like the you can see the door moving um, and you can see the holes that have already been done, but they don't try to, like, the, the implication is that they are pecking through the door based on what you see, but you don't see any, like, the, it doesn't show any, there's no shot of birds, right? <laughs> yeah, which would be terrible because that's not actually how bird like, birds could, like, that's not actually a thing that would happen. And so, uh, by, in a sort of jaws, you don't show, show the shark kind of moment. He's like, we're just going to do this by implication. Um, and, and it yeah. works. And your Absolutely. brain fills
1: in like, holy crap, how are they doing that? Right. And it's, yeah. So, but Which, then conversely, when he shows the shit happening, when Tippy Hedren goes up to the upstairs and, and like, it's funny, she she the, the, that's the huge big scene, right? So she's going upstairs because she hears a sound. Everything seems to have gone away and everyone's kind of dazed and bedazzled and, well, bedazzled, I don't know that they're bedazzled, that's a weird word to use, but they're all kind of bedraggled. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're all lit up with gems. Uh, they're all kind of laying down and she hears a noise upstairs that sounds like bird fluttering. She goes to the door and the first thing I saw, I'm, I'm praying to myself because I don't remember. I'm like, does the door open out or in? Because if it opens out, oh my gosh, you're going to let all those birds back in the house. I forget how this movie ends. But if it opens in, she can see the birds and then she can just quickly pull it closed and nothing's going to happen. And I look and the, the the door opens in. So I'm like, oh, this is not going to be as bad as I remember it being because she can just close the door again. And then the way that it and winds then. up happening, <laughs> that the fact that it opens in means it also closes out and becomes a, a huge point later when she's trapped in that room and then rod taylor has to come and get her and can't at that point you're seeing the birds do what they do you're there's no kind of implication or use your imagination and it's equally terrifying to see what they do to her
0: absolutely um and okay if if i think that the the most obvious thing that is that stands out for this movie that like takes just the tiniest bit of like shine off the thing is is some of the effects um but there was something that it sort of threw me off at the very beginning of the movie is sort of the romantic comedy aspect of how rod taylor and tippy hedrin get together um which is that she's uh she's just at a store and rod taylor who knows her from an old court case where she had uh done a prank uh decided to pull a prank on her seemingly at random and then her response is well he's rod taylor and a handsome man so i'm gonna buy some lovebirds and drive out of my way to give them to him that that part where i was I, I eventually like once once things settle down once they're there i can sort of buy them as a couple and then you get to like the the you know the rest of the business but the whole part where he like nigs her basically for something that happened years ago. That whole part, I was like, is this, like, what kind of insane, like, men's rights activist bullshit is he on?
1: <laughs> so I, I I didn't get... So you may have had it slightly different than I understood it. Was it for a really old court case, or was it one that she was going to have to appear in court for? I thought I, it was for a forthcoming case. I,
0: I thought it was for an old thing that he recognized her from, uh and where there was some again they just called it like a practical joke i think and he was like i'm going," and he does this whole song oh, yeah, dance no, about not knowing who she <laughs> oh, not knowing who she, yeah. she is and then it's like now you and then when he finally says yes i do know who you are and now you know how it feels to have a prank pulled on you and i was like <laughs> well, like they what like why why would it's, you do that
1: it's it's weird it, it's a weird and awkward meet cute i would argue that I think one of the primary reasons why it also fails the way it fails is, um, and maybe this is a good time to talk about some of the performances. Um, cause I think across the board, mm-hmm. Tippi Hedren, if, if this is her first real film, she is f- great in this. I love mm-hmm. Jessica Tandy. I've already talked about her. Suzanne Plachette. Oh man, man. Let me yeah, tell you. Annie, <laughs> the Suzanne,
0: school teacher. Yeah. Yeah. She, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, uh-huh.
1: uh-huh. That's, that's all, that's all we need to say. Uh, Rod Taylor, is a stick in the mud, man. And he does not hold a candle to the other people in this film. And it drags it down a little bit.
0: (laughs) It really does. Well, and I'm I'm wondering if someone with more charm might be able to better sell you on these weird plot contrivance that puts the two of them together. Or just, like, rewrite it so that it's not as weird as it is. Because really, like, I, I guess, I mean, I guess then at that point, the, like... One of the central questions, of course, is why are the birds attacking? And at one point, one of the townspeople, uh, in a rather chilling and uncomfortable uh, scene, uh, goes up to Tibri Hedron and says, like, this is happening since you started here. So this is your fault. And, like, the only thing that you could possibly draw that from that is the practical joke that is referenced that she went to court for, but, like, is not elaborated on. So it's kind of, like... It's not really enough to really go off of. There is but no it-
1: way that that's the reason, <laughs> unless there are weird like those weird like I'm gonna just call it, call it what it is. Those weird fanboys out there that have to connect the dots to every single Star Wars or Marvel or oh god. Re- re- th- there is there is no reason known for why the birds are doing what they are doing. If you are watching this movie to look for clues, you are in. I apologize, but you, sir or madam, are an idiot. The whole point of the horror is we don't know why they do what they do. (laughs) Please don't go looking for a weird clue that maybe this person works here or they did this and it was because of that. Please, please don't ruin this movie. Please don't ruin this movie for looking for logic. The terror is in the illogical conception of what is happening. That is why it's scary. It becomes non-scary the second you say it was because of a government experiment that went wrong.
0: (laughs) I I mean, I so was. box I, off. I'm not. I'm yeah, done. no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, there are specific people in my life who you are describing, uh, and I don't like those conversations any more than you do. I was thinking about it more along the lines of like, is there a theme here? Like, like they establish her as having some kind of, you know, some kind of troubled past but don't really get into it and like to to the extent that you're right like it is mostly like it it doesn't really make sense to tack that on to why the birds are attacking even though it does coincide with her arrival that's why i almost think that it would be better to just like rewrite their introduction in a like just don't have him be weird to her just like yeah do something that would else that would require her to drive the birds up to see him and then you then you then you then you're done
1: yeah and i mean it, and even her her weird prankster background it, that doesn't it really doesn't lend much to the story i mean you can make the case that she's You know, she does these practical jokes. She doesn't care about who it affects because she really only cares about herself. And then as her relationship with Jessica Tandy's mother character kind of comes into play and she's, you know, she starts to care for the little girl and she starts to care for the mother and she starts to show that she's not this perception of what's been put into the tabloids. Like, I get it. But you could have done that in a hundred different ways, and 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 get rid of the whole prank scenario, which then makes you get rid of the whole opening, you know, meet cute gambit, which kind of fails anyway.
0: Or we can just pin the whole thing on Rod Taylor, which I feel like is just as equally valid because <laughs> because it's I all wish, it's all through his reaction to her, right? I wish there was something, you know, I wish I could pin it because I've seen
1: him in other things where I like him. He just seems he's just so bland in this movie, uh, especially when you have Tippy. H- especially when you have Suzanne Plachette, <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, when it, when it turned out that he just, you know, the, whole, he, they tell the story of how it didn't work out. I, my first thought was like, dude, you lost Suzanne Plachette. You look, I get you're getting Tippy Hedren, but you lost Suzanne Plachette, uh, which, you know, sadly, we'll talk about spoilers. Uh, I, 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 I I said there was a scene with Jessica Tandy that's my favorite scene in the movie – my second favorite scene in the movie. That's because my favorite scene in this movie, probably the most kind of awful, horrific, like this is horror, is that amazing shot where they're driving to go pick up – I can't remember the little girl's name. But she was staying with Suzanne Plachette and they pull up to the house and the camera just keeps going past the fence. And when you get to the fence opening, you see her laying dead on the front steps. It is such a chilling shot. It is, it it's a, it's a masterful shot. It's a masterful Hitchcockian shot. Just how dreadful you're coming to the house. You know, something's wrong because everything's quiet. And then to just the way that they do that reveal is, is horrible, 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 horrible. And it's, and it's it, wonderful at the same time. Cause it's so effective.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, this, I, you, you know, It's coming. Because again, from the very beginning, you know that this is a movie about birds attacking, but the way that he's able to basically sort of delay the, I mean, delay the gratification of it. I mean, to me, that's why, that's why you call him the Master Suspense. He's because he's able to basically hook you, uh, the, the, the whole way around until basically at the end, it's just like one of the more, like, it, it's not so much the actual, th- well, I mean, in some cases where the effects are working it's what you're seeing but even so it's more the um the way he's able to manage those feelings of tension and really ramp them up at the end that just sort of or it's it's steady but definitely escalating towards the end when it just sort of i i i came out of it like i went to this movie going okay i'm gonna watch this movie and then i'm gonna lightly make i'm i'm like lightly going to tease Heather about uh, not watching this movie. And I came away at the end of this movie going, absolutely. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Nope. You you were right not to watch this. This is, this is uh, absolutely going to, uh, if you have a fear of large birds uh, in your close proximity, this is going to reinforce that phobia. It's just going to wreck you. (laughs) I, I I'm almost at a place where, well, no, I wouldn't say that I'm, closer to being scared of large groups of birds but like i get it like if someone were i'd be like yes that is a perfectly reasonable fear i understand
1: (laughs) (laughs) um couple other things i want to point out just uh um i because i alluded to it and never spoke to it and i know you've talked about it as well um my second favorite kind of scary scene in the whole movie is the sequence with Jessica Tandy going to reprimand the farmer <laughs> who she thinks sold him oh bad 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 God. chicken feed and just man with no eyes <laughs> but just, not-
0: he's a he's a man with no eyes in a fucking 1960s movie just just a man with His eyes gone,
1: but it's not even it's it's not even that great sequence because like like they cut and they do these flash cuts closer and closer and closer to his face, and they did a great job. That was also animated. They they animated out his eyes using the same process that they did to show the birds on the screen. But it's the sequence after that where she runs out of the house and Hitchcock kind of zooms the camera up to her face, but like zooms it up from behind, and you see her in distress. But there's no sound. Like he cuts the sound at that moment. It's there is a lot to be said for. Um, and I, I highly recommend, um, if you've never read it, um, I will show it on screen for John, uh, but I highly recommend the Truffaut-Hitchcock uh, book, which is them just conversing with each other about every single film. Uh, and they go into a lot of detail about the birds and the sound design of the birds and how it works. And that particular sequence is just a, a masterpiece of how you marry image and sound and sometimes subtract parts of that in order to make the scene even more effective. Um, it's such a great It's such a great point in the film
0: since we are talking about sound uh one last thing i want to mention is or before we wrap up is the is in the end before uh, when they're sort of in the boarded up house and you just and the cacophony of the birds just starts in like there are you and i listen to you know experimental stuff and i've listened to harsh noise albums that were basically like this is this is on par with any of the harsh noise stuff that we've ever listened to and i'm just like this is <laughs> fucked like this is uh, and it's uh like it and it was done in the 60s it's 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 insane just that that the people being scared of the shit ton of birds just outside i was like yeah this absolutely works for me
1: yeah <laughs> So good. Uh, A couple other things to point out if you did not know. uh, um, So the young girl whose name I couldn't remember is Kathy, the daughter, uh, Mm -hmm. played by Veronica Cartwright, uh, who was Lambert in Alien and in a bunch of other movies. This was one of her early film roles as a little kid.
0: Oh, that's fine.
1: <laughs> so just a little bit of trivia. And the other thing that I would be remiss and I would hate myself if I did not point out um, because he is so near and dear to my heart is um, this movie uh was written by Evan Hunter uh, based on a short story called The Birds by Daphne du Maurier. Um, and if you don't know who Evan Hunter is, you might know him by one of his other names. He goes by the name of Ed McBain, and he is the author of the 87th Precinct series, which is hands down the greatest series of novels around the police, uh, ever. I would just lay claim to that right now. There is not a better police procedural series written than the 87th Precinct series. It was kind of the basis for Hill Street Blues. It was the basis for a lot of things. It was the basis for a lot of shitty movies, but the books are some of the best books I have ever read in my entire life. Uh, And Evan Hunter wrote it. Wrote this uh, movie for Hitch.
0: Now we're gonna move on to film recommendations which we do every episode. Chris, what you got for us today?
1: I'm gonna to stick with Hitchcock because it was um, it was a lot of fun to revisit the films and I know we've joked on the podcast before um, sometimes I just stick to the two that we watch or sometimes I do a real deep dive and I try to catch as many as I can and when it's someone that I'm as familiar with as Hitchcock, um, it's easy to not only jump in but also make some more recommendations so I'm gonna jump with the the other two that i I caught. Um, while we were specifically watching for this, one of which is To Catch a Thief, starring Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. Um, it is not suspenseful at all. Uh, in fact, a lot of the uh, criticisms at the time where this was a step down for Hitchcock, it's all kind of fluff and silliness and not a lot of tension. And it's not. But when your silliness includes the French Riviera, Cary Grant, and Grace Kelly, I'm totally fine to just spend two hours in their company because it's it's wonderful and and... And light and airy and nimble and does what it needs to do and kind of gets out. Um, so definitely check that out. Another one that I have a lot more reservations on. Um, it, it's probably the last time Hitchcock was really kind of in a major way, you know, pushing the envelope. And that's the movie right after The Birds. Uh, so Marnie, uh, the second film starring Tippi Hedren, but also with Sean Connery now taking over in a much more charismatic role than Rod Taylor. Um, This is a movie about this is a movie about sex, frankly. It's about sex and thievery and um, sexual psychology and and post-traumatic damage that kind of rears its head in these different ways. Um, it's brutal. It has an unexcusable, and I'll say this right now for a trigger. So kind of go at your own pace. There is a, there is ostensibly a rape scene between Sean Connery and Tippy Hedren, um, that is horrible to watch. And, but it's interesting to still see the movie and kind of work through why it's in the film, why it matters. Um, Evan Hunter, uh, writer of the Birds, was the original writer for Marnie, and he refused to do this scene. He tried to fight Hitchcock out of it, and then he finally said, look, here's a different way to do the scene. Why don't you try it this way? And the next day he was fired, uh, because Hitchcock was all about trying to do this scene. And if you know anything about Hitchcock and his relationship with icy blonde women, particularly Tippi Hedren, um, there's a lot that's come out about her experience with him, and— A lot of that kind of informs the way you look at Marnie, Um, but I still think it's an important work to check out. So um, I'm going to kind of give that a recommendation with a caveat. I I, I think it's an interesting film uh, that has a lot of problems that I think beg a closer review, um, especially in light of the films that come after, which frankly become worse and worse and worse uh, up until we get to family plot, which is just not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. So um, two, you know, kind of later ones to look forward to. And I'll just throw out there again, um, if we're talking about some of the older black and white ones that aren't psycho, which is not particularly old, Shadow of a Doubt uh, with Joseph Cotton is just uh, incredible. Uh, one of my favorite Hitchcocks, Stranger on a Train <laughs> with Farley Granger. I could keep going and going and going, but uh, we'll stop with those four. And I'll hand it over to you, John, because I know uh, you, you've got a couple that you want to talk through
0: as well. If we're talking Hitchcock recommendations, again, this is one where I watched a The Simpsons episode where they get a pool um, and then work my way backwards to watching Rear Window Um the, uh, Rear Window is probably one of my favorite Hitchcock movies straight up. Same here. Um, yep. It's fantastic. No, no notes, just p- pretty, pretty great. Um, the other movie I wanted to, uh, mention, uh, is, has nothing to do with Alfred Hitchcock in any way, shape, or form. It's Pixar's Turning Red. Um, <clears throat> a movie that based on the marketing for it, I assumed would be, a movie that would probably be fine. Pixar does good movies. Not really a lot of complaints. I assumed that it wouldn't be for me specifically. And I was okay with that. Cause I'm not a man baby on the internet. Um, and then I watched it. <laughs> I was going to say ca- from
1: every criticism that I read, I, this movie, I shouldn't even try to watch this because mm-hmm. how could I ever put myself into the shoes of another person?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's not exactly me.
1: That's insane.
0: <laughs> uh, yes. Um, people are stupid. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, the kit and, and we have Disney Plus. So the kids knew that it was coming and they asked, uh, so I knew it was going to come that we were going to watch it. And I was like, you know what? This is going to be fine. I'm going to have a pleasant, inoffensive, good time and then just move on with my life because, again, I am a grown man, uh, and not a man baby on the in- internet. But what I actually found was like, it's one of Pixar's best movies in a long time. Like that and Luca are just like two of the best Pixar movies that they've done in a really long time. And the specificity of the experience only actually made it better. Like the, the, the whole, like <laughs> the, 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 not, the boy band aspect of it i didn't see coming at all and i assumed that like frozen for example when the young uh when the young girl gets her uh has her powers and you expect this to be you know in frozen her powers are a source of frustration and she spends the whole movie learning to sort of you know come to terms with it whereas the immediate response in turning red to her new powers uh is this shit is cool And we should just use it to fundraise for to go see a boy band concert. I was like, "Fuck!" I didn't see that coming. And then, without saying more of what happens in the movie, every time I expected I knew where the story was going, it was like, "No, we're gonna, we're gonna." Like, it ultimately is about the some of the like the tensions and relationships within that you know the the main character and their family and friends, but the way that they get there, I'd never. I was pleasantly and immediately surprised by and the fact that you know it's th- there were just enough like if you didn't know anything about Canadians is that we have a inferiority complex where any mention of Canada sends us into like a frenzy where it's like oh, they said Canada and so this the there there are enough Canadian ref- specific references I mean besides the fact that it's set in Toronto that I was like that it made me happy um yeah that movie rules It's so good. I
1: I cannot wait to see it. Uh, I am really looking forward to it. In in reality, that one idiotic review aside, it seems the consensus is that this is, this is Pixar doing what Pixar does best. Um, and I've always argued, I think we've talked about this in other arenas, but, you know, specificity leads to university, uh, universalism. The more specific, the more detailed you can make an experience the more real that experience becomes. And then the easier it is to fall into that experience. Um, and as long as you have an ounce of empathy, it shouldn't matter how specific the instance is. It should just be, you know, how well it's executed and then how well you're able to put yourself in that, that place. So I am, I am, I am, I, I cannot wait. Um, Unfortunately, I have a, a, 14 going on 15 going on 30 year old son who has no interest in that because he has not found that he is not he has not learned the lesson of specificity becoming universal and putting yourself in that spot um he had a real problem with rope because he was like i dad i don't get it they're they're bad guys how am i who do i root for i'm like this is you don't root in this movie you just experience it and then talk about it
0: wait till Uh, your son gets to breaking bad god
1: (laughs) uh but that is great i cannot wait that, that, that is one that uh, maybe we'll have to talk about at a later point after I've seen it. Cause I am really looking forward to seeing
0: it. I'm hoping I, I I'm hoping in hearing you reveal that you haven't seen it, that I haven't spoiled too much. I don't think no. I have, I've, but I've heard uh,
1: that, that boy bands play a factor.
0: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, it. And yes, I was at, at every moment. It just got better that's and awesome. I wasn't, I did not have ex- expectations for it beyond just standard kids movie. And it was fantastic um but yeah i think that's probably going to do it for us today uh chris always every time absolute pleasure i hope that the chaos of life uh, uh is manageable and that uh we're able to come back around uh in a month's time to do another one
1: i hope the same for you sir and i i think we should definitely be able to come back in a month's time and do another one what that one will be we don't know we didn't figure that out yet but uh <laughs> it'll be something fun that that'll be for sure
0: all right stay safe everyone take care of each other um please be alive and uncovided if you can um wear masks all that good stuff yeah bye everybody take care